Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the 2019 election specials. I'm Danielle Ward and this is one of two podcasts we're putting out about the general election on Thursday the 12th of December. If you're listening to this afterwards, it's too late. Joining me to answer questions about the coverage of the election is the political editor of The New Statesman, Stephen Bush. Hello, Stephen. Hello. And asking questions that reveal that while they may have voted in 2017, they definitely shouldn't have been allowed to. It's Nat Tapley and Suze Kempner. Hello. 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 <laughs> now, as ever, no-one listens to the end of podcasts, so if anyone wants to plug anything, let's do it now. Suze, anything you Oh, want I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, at Suze UK, S-O-O-Z-U-K. Uh, I do a podcast called Date Fight with Jake Yap. That's a good... Podcasts mm. are good. People like podcasts these days. They're listening to one now. Stephen, have you got anything you want to plug? So I have a control chip fitted in me which requires me to say that you can subscribe to the New Statesman for <laughs> some money for some issues. The chip is not flawless yet, but yeah. it's, there's always some kind <laughs> of offer. It's not your job to know. You're yeah. not one of the telesales people. Yeah. No, so. exactly. But if you, if you go on the website, there'll be a, a nice little link and a weird picture of either Boris Johnson or, or Jeremy Corbyn, depending on you how it plays out. I think I'm really happy to say this up front um, because obviously there's this whole thing about balance and everything. This is a podcast, doesn't have to be balanced. I will state right now that I do not want the Conservatives to win. Uh, I live in York Outer and the exciting thing for me is I was looking on the tactical voting sites. Who should I tactically vote for? And for ages it looked like it was going to be Lib Dems, which made me really sad because my mother-in-law is a big campaigner for them. But it's gone Labour, so woohoo! Um, but anyway, back to the issue. Um, if I can ask you this, Stephen... First and probably the most important question when it comes to this campaign, this election campaign, what was your favourite bit of the Plaid Cymru manifesto? <laughs> Come on, big question. We've got to start with the big question. Um, so my favourite part of it, actually, this is really embarrassing because I do have a copy of it. I, I, um, I think I liked the resulting row afterwards after Adam Price suggested that Wales had suffered... Colonization, yeah, its, uh, it's, it's suffering yeah. was equivalent to colonization, because although actually I think then he does actually have quite a good point, right? The, Wales mm -hmm. is the only part of the United Kingdom where its language was prohibited, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. The joy of the moment where you could see crossing across his face, this sort of shouldn't have phrased it like that. You could kind of <laughs> you could tell that, you know, and there's just one of the few satisfying things about conversation is watching someone go, nope, shouldn't have done that. No, there's no way back, is there? I've, I've just said that and I'm just going to have to live with the fact that I have used the, the C word in this context. But what's interesting is you're talking about someone who says something and realises it was the wrong thing to say, which does bring me to my proper first question is mm. this election campaign specifically, how... How has everybody been able to lie so much? Mm. Why aren't journalists pulling up people on lies? To be honest, it's kind of a bit like the sort of journalistic equivalent of when um, a footballer who used to be good, yeah, a central defender who used to be good, and then someone, yeah, like 18 years old just goes past them and you're just like, oh, are you rubbish now? And <laughs> I think it. I think we've probably always been deeply incapable of dealing with someone who just lies yeah. all the time. And the referendum exposed that... Um, if you go 
the sky is is red, then you know the the media as a whole will either, if they're on your side, go, "It's true, the sky is red." Thank you, Boris Johnson, for being the first person to say so. Mm-hmm. And the BBC will go, "Is the sky red?" A meteorologist <laughs> is on to you know, like you know, Professor Cloudy McFace. You know, is this true? And they're like, "Ah, oh, but we have a a strident person from a right wing newspaper yeah. who says it is. We have a witch we found yeah. in a bin, and she <laughs> yeah. says yeah. the sky is red." Yeah, and I think then because now. Essentially, every political party has realised not only is the um, the tariff on lying non-existent, but actually the price for not doing so is almost sort of... Prohi- I mean, we actually are kind of seeing that a bit in this election, right? Then We have a situation where the two main parties have really radical proposals for how the, the shape of the country, mm-hmm. and Labour are openly going, if you vote for us, there's going to be a big old change in how the economy runs itself. It will be hugely disruptive to, to some of you, and that's why you dislike me, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the only reason people dislike him. But, yeah, they're, they're being quite upfront about their radicalism. Yeah. And then you have the Conservatives going... We'll get Brexit done and it'll just be like normal, guys. There'll be no other changes. It'll Basically, we'll all go back to talking about other things, which is just completely untrue. So we, we are already seeing in this election that probably the Labour Party would be better off if they were going, oh, we're just honest folks, you know, there'll be no disruption at all. The economy will look broadly the same under Corbyn as it does now. Um, yeah, we, we have massively failed to hold that to account. It is... I think probably the second most depressing thing about covering this election is our kind of collective failure as an industry. Mm. Oh, that's very honest of you. Was that the second most depressing? Yeah, I mean, what, what is the most depressing? So actually the, the most depressing thing, which also does relate to, I think, you know, kind of a particular failure of our major broadcasters, which has been, again, right, this is an election which has a huge consequences on the future of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I... I I mean, I was about to say I don't mind which way people come down. That's that's a lie. But mm. I, I would feel a lot more relaxed about it if I felt for a moment that the majority of voters understand that they are pulling quite a significant lever in terms of the shape of the economy, what happens to manufacturing, what that means for, you know, tax and spend and art. And I just I just find it quite frustrating because, you know, I, I, I someone said to me, Oh, you know, it's yeah, there's a battle of ideas in this election. It's just like, well, notionally there is, but at no point have we allowed that, particularly on television, to intrude. You know, I don't know if anyone had the misfortune to watch the ITV debate in which we had 15 mm. minutes on whether or not they would shake hands. Mm. And no one watching that would have known that. If you work in manufacturing, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal means, you know, good night Vienna. And if you work in manufacturing, Jeremy Corbyn's plans for industrial democracy will again completely change how you work. And I, I really wouldn't mind how that hypothetical voter voted between those two people if I felt they in any way understood that that was on the table. Well, I guess that's the problem with what is classically called the neoliberalism of the past 20 years is because nothing has changed and there's been nothing... But also, people say there's been very little between the two major parties. People just think, oh, it's, just all, it's all going to be the same anyway, isn't it? Oh, it doesn't matter how I vote, nothing's going to change. Whereas, it, I mean, it is going to be, whichever way it goes, it's going to be quite radical. When they were going back about 10 years, when the two main parties were basically the same was it really hard to write about them did you just have to write about reality tv and stuff i think actually it's overstated the extent to which they were basically the same Mm. um we're still talking about you know 10 years ago a conservative party which yeah majority of its mps had voted against repealing section 28 Mm. which wanted a far lower level of public spending actually i mean in 2001, the future of the NHS genuinely probably was on the ballot. You know, the Conservative Party did talk openly about moving to a voucher system. You did have mm. you know, school vouchers as a way of improving outcomes by airlifting people out of the state sector into uh, the private sector. All mm. of the political parties now 
essentially argue about how you can improve state education, right? There were kind of huge and significant differences mm. then. But of course, we did all mostly write about the inner life of the Labour Party because they were hegemonic and had a huge majority. And yeah. Gosh, that feels so weird to say out loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nat, have you got a question? Which of Boris Johnson's 17 children is the best one, please? Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's hard... It's hard to say for sure, partly because it's hard, hard to quantify. I mean, I think my favourite, speaking mm. as someone, you know, uh, similarly who grew up without a dad, is it will be the one who will inevitably do the... Because we all at some point, everyone who's fatherless, at some point you have a, what's it all about? I need to find myself. Mm-hmm. One of them will eventually do that and will probably write a very self-involved book about it. I have written a very self-involved column about it. And, yeah, I think that will be great reading for, for everyone. And how far in the future is that likely to be... I mean, it could be any time, right? I mean, like, there's <laughs> quite a, yeah. there's quite a long, read it. you yeah. know, kind of time frame, yeah. as it were. You know, his... For his active penis. <laughs> Ooh. Stephen, can I ask you, does anything you print about any candidate honestly make any difference? Do you feel it makes a difference when you're writing it? No. No, I don't, to be honest. Uh, when you're kind of a small magazine for very politically engaged people, I think... My hope is always that we maybe make a difference to the opinions of other journalists and people who actually will then make a difference. So I think I sort of hope that when we go, um, yeah, to use a kind of recent example, right, when we write the BBC's allowed itself to be completely played with this decision Mm. for Boris Johnson not to be interviewed by Andrew Neil while all of his rivals had this tough interview. And, you know, ultimately, because they are so large and have such a huge influence on our media, they really do need to, you know, use that clout more effectively. By, for instance, they could at the start of every election say, there'll be a seven-way debate, which you're all going to do. There'll be an hour-long sit-down about policy, which you're all going to do. And if you won't sign up for those things, then I'm sorry, you don't get your nice slot on the one show or or your breakfast telly slot, the stuff which really matters to them, as opposed to them going, oh, so no one's agreed to have an hour-long interview since 2005, but don't worry, we'll still make sure they can talk about scones and manhole covers on on the one show. And it's just like, well, look, if you give people exposure without scrutiny, of course they're going to dodge the scrutiny. And so I always hope that where we're influential is that the the bigger stuff people go, actually, no, they they do have a point. We should use our clout more effectively. Yeah, so you're sort of pushing that that way. Are you... Are you or any of your friends in the media genuinely scared Boris Johnson might get you beaten up? <laughs> not really, to be honest. I think, um, yeah, I think not so. These days. <laughs> not these <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, we've send all, one of the kids round. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> we've all made mistakes in our youth. I, for example, used to when I was a teenager, you know, wear a velvet jacket and have like a penguin in one. That pocket cool. to get people to. I thought it was cool at the time. I think that's cool. Like a biscuit or a. No, as in like oh. a book. So I'd look like an oh. intellectual. Oh, gotcha. yeah. An no. actual penguin. No, I mean, yeah. So both of those would have been much better. But no, I just did that kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm reading Tolstoy. Some people did that. Other mm-hmm. people gave the contacts of someone who was wanting to threaten a journalist. I mean, I think, to be honest, one of the problems with political journalism in particular is that. What people do worry about isn't they won't have sufficient access to be able to do their jobs. Yeah. And when people think that the outcome is a foregone conclusion, people hedge towards the winning side, right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people, we become like sunflowers and you kind of go like, ah, oh, the sun king, here he is, mm-hmm. quoting his cod Latin. Yeah, you saw that particularly in 2017, the way that you kind of a lot of the coverage about Labour would begin with, although Jeremy Corbyn is doomed to end up with only eight seats, mm-hmm. he's had quite a good week this week. Mm. 
And I think that is the real kind of thing that we fear and the thing which is probably quite corrosive of democracy is this kind of, yeah, oh dear, what if I say something mean about Downing Street? I will never again get an exclusive from them and I will never again get to interview Boris Johnson. Obviously, I, the joy of being at the New Statesman is I feel the prospect of me getting to interview <laughs> Boris Johnson are quite slim anyway. So. Does that come from a personal place or does that come from a, you know, for the good of the institution you're working for? For example, you know, the mirror weren't allowed on the, the mm. battle bus or whatever it was called. Do you, do you think that you're hedging your bets because it's important that your readers get access to this or is it more about yourself? Well, I think it's a combination of both, right, in that people feel they can't serve their readers if they don't have access. But, of course, they also feel concerned that they will displease their editors and, that you know, they're not as influential or as important if they don't have access, right? And I think it's not the only reason why Corbyn's arrival as Labour leader was treated in the way it was. But I think a lot of people went from when their editor went, tell me what's going on at the top of the Labour Party, being able to go, I spoke to all of the key people and I can tell you at great length, to going, um, what is a John McDonnell? And they found that yeah. quite um, discombobulating and it made them quite annoyed because a lot of my job, right, is, is speaking to politicians about how they feel about stuff. So when I ask them very specific questions, I'm not just like that mate who only calls when they want to, like, crash on your sofa. Mm -hmm. They're just like, oh, OK, well, the reason why we're doing this is that. And I think a lot of people basically felt, oh, well, that's years of, of work with the kind of new Labour era Labour Party flushed down the toilet. I can't wait till this man goes away and my old sources become relevant again. Even from people who were actually more ideologically close to the, the new model Labour Party than the last Labour gotcha. Party, they had this kind of indignation that they were having to start from a blank piece of paper. Yeah, so the feeling, Aidan, you can't serve your readers, but also, you know, you used to be the person who'd go, yeah, I know what the Prime Minister thinks. And now you're just like, yep. I know what the sound of the Prime Minister hanging the phone up and be like, nope, not in a million years mm. is, which is not as, you know, cool or, or hip. Do you think that when Will Self got kicked off John Major's plane for doing heroin, he was worried about <laughs> getting access? How am I going to get back <laughs> in here? They have really blotted my copybook now. My gonna, yeah, it was either a plane or a bus. I can't remember oh, which. Wow. It was a, yeah, it was a plane in the run up to the 1997 election. I, th I think it's less cool to do drugs on the plane of someone who's obviously going to lose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. You know, she was like, oh, you know, that's that's a that's an important strategic relationship completely, completely gone. I guess we won't get his resignation statement as an exclusive. But yeah, I think partly because, you know, like all millennials, I, I'm, you know, too impoverished and dull to have interesting habits. The closest I've ever come to that is um, I had a gin and a tin on the Lib Dem battle bus this campaign. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty radical. Um, <laughs> Was it a Marks and Spencer one, or was it? It was from a, a service station. Oh, so it's probably a Gordon's. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Well, a, I know my gins and tins. <laughs> Susan, have you got a question? Yeah, and when Ed Miliband ate a bacon sandwich all wrong in 2015, in an example of dog whistle anti-Semitism, I called out at the time and got called crazy. But the more, less I say about that, the better. It was said that how he ate it lost in the election. Do you think? Uh, a politician could eat in a really cool way and win the election, and what way would that be? I mean, I kind of think, ultimately, the only way to look cool while eating is not to do it on camera, right? OK. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a little bit like having sex. No-one yeah. actually, no-one looks good up close, right? Really, unless <laughs> you're... Like especially in a still frame. Yeah, unless you're, yeah. unless you're very invested in the person. Um, the thing with the, the bacon sandwich is I think it's one mm. of those things which, like, People who are politically engaged, we got very het up about it. Mm. Uh, I don't think it was really what his problem was. Although I do think, weirdly, the fact of the photo happened did did sum up lots of things that went wrong for them that year, which yeah. is 
never make your candida look silly and no one looks good when they're eating. A lot of people made fun of that weird picture of David Cameron in which he cut up his, his hot dog into pieces. <laughs> yeah. But I actually just felt deeply sorry for him because I thought, oh God, the reason why you've done this is that you know full well that if at a barbecue you eat a hot dog like a normal person, <laughs> there will be a picture of you in which you look like you're filleting it and we will yeah. all make fun of you. In and although end. I wouldn't have stopped making fun of him, <laughs> if done that, I did briefly think, wow, we have ruined this man's life. He cannot eat a hot dog anymore. So what you're saying is if I ever stand chance of becoming prime minister, I need to get all my food put into me intravenously. Yeah. Just straight into the, straight into the stomach, <laughs> gastro tube. Maybe that's, that's why yeah. Cameron bought that shed. Yeah, so wooden, that new wooden thing in his garden so he could eat in it. That is probably what he does, yeah. <laughs> he just goes in there and yeah. his hands. Ah, I can eat however given, I want. Given this, the, the oddly pathological love that some, that probably half the electorate have for Boris Johnson and the more ridiculous things he does, the more they seem to adore that. They love the fact mm. they don't have any kids. Got, they love the fact that he's outspoken, that he, he, he lies to them, all these sorts of things. He doesn't seem to be able to really put a foot wrong with that part of the electorate. Do you think there's anything he could eat <laughs> that would make them go, oh, no? Or would he have to go back to Boris Johnson's beet injections? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I keep thinking about this because I am sort of... I'm fascinated by what, what is the thing that he could do because yeah. mostly yeah. when you disagree with someone about a politician you disagree about something the politician does right whereas the weird thing is is when i go around the country and talk to people who are voting conservative or i yeah look at what, what people are voting to say about him in the polls when i sit in on a focus group the things they say about him are just like yep yeah, yeah i agree yeah yeah. He, yeah but i feel like you know maybe if he you know he did something which kind of revealed and he really was you know just another tory right you know if mm. if you know someday you know someone gave him some food and he looked at this and went i wouldn't order this in islington mate because we forget although obviously his new thing is i'm not part of the metropolitan elite mm, of course yeah you know, the guy is is so metropolitan elite yeah. and you know he yeah, you know, he probably has like you know an Ocado card with a single digit number on it. That's how. <laughs> and I kind of think, in a weird way, yeah, if he, the thing which would probably hold Boris Johnson's reputation below the waterline is if he did something which sincerely reminded people that he he is literally just David Cameron, but without doing the preparation and hard work first. And I kind yeah. of feel like the. I don't feel that the thing I think of when I think, oh, I wish David Cameron's government had been different, is if only it had been more slapdash. Yeah. Mm. Nat, do you have a question? I do have a question. Um, given that both Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were columnists, which columnists should we be keeping our eyes on now? As in, which one should we... Which one's are going to end up ruling us oh, in I, terrible I, ways? So I wasn't, yeah, so this is the one we, we want to prevent becoming... Yes. Um, it's a really good question. I enjoy Rick Samada in The Guardian. Mm. He could be Prime Minister. I'm, so <laughs> I'm against him becoming uh, Prime Minister oh. because... <laughs> He has a very good series about food and kitchens in The Guardian, which has not been discontinued. I had, some would say, a worse <laughs> series. I would say a better series, mm -hmm. but it has been, you know, discontinued. discontinued. And it would be painful to me if Rick Samada... So, yes, Rick yeah. Samada, he is the one we should watch out for. <laughs> any, whatever, any, by any means necessary, he must be prevented from becoming Prime Minister. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Can I ask about the Brexit party? So um, they are a limited company. What's that about? <laughs> I don't. I, I genuinely don't quite understand how the Brexit party works. Mm. What it is? What would happen if they got? Si- I mean, what is it? So it's basically. Because sort of in original UKIP, the thing people always used to say is, oh, we've got a rule book, but in reality, the only rule is in the end, Nigel decides. Mm. Then it turned out that actually, eventually, he couldn't kind of keep winning their weird internal battles. Because his whole political project, right, is basically like, you know, appealing to people who kind of go, I'm not a racist, but Mm -hmm. while also getting the votes of people who go, I am a racist and I'm proud of it. And the thing which is not just here, but across the democratic world tends to limit the rise of far right parties is that you have a group of about 15% of the country who broadly agree with statements like diversity has got out of hand, who spell the word Muslims with an O. I'm Mm -hmm. so fascinated. What what is it about? Like whenever, but whenever you get, yeah, whenever you get an email where someone spells Muslim with an O, you're like, yep, this is going to, this is going to be racist, isn't it? Did they all go, do they all have the same dictionary? But, you know, basically they could only appeal to the groups of people who felt those things and were comfortable saying them overtly. Mm -hmm. And his great success, such as it was, to get the votes of all of those people and, you know, also the votes of people who say things like, well, my grandkids are mixed race, but I don't want any more of them, thank you. Yeah, and his problem, of course, is UKIP then got taken over by people who were like, no, those grandkids are bad. So he started a new party in inverted commas which is designed around effectively meaning that although those people you know can still apply to be candidates he can just go nope sorry under the rules of my own private company you don't get in and there is it's one of those weird things there is no reason why you can't do that other than the fact that it's obviously deeply weird to have a situation in which you don't you're not a proper party in a normal sense so but this is what i don't understand what is the power what is this higher power that can go because it, it clearly shouldn't be allowed to happen. But who who stands in and says, well, that's rubbish, um, that this isn't a political party? Because obviously anybody can stand to become uh, an MP. Like, they, you know, you get bucket head and fish finger yeah. face or whatever they're called. So clearly you don't have to be a political party to do it. But I don't understand why maybe the Queen hasn't stepped in. And got, <laughs> well, no, no, sorry, not this one. Well, I think because the problem is, is I think the things about the way the Brexit Party organises itself that make me personally a bit uneasy are all things that when you write down I would like a party not to be able to do X you mm-hmm. very you, there's no way to do it without also criminalising a bunch of things I think it's wholly legitimate for political parties to do including things that I don't really like than some political parties do like yeah I think it's perfectly fine for Jeremy Corbyn who has been elected twice as Labour leader mm-hmm. to in, to rip up all the things he used to say about members of democracy and go, actually, I just want to get my preferred candidates in like every Labour leader since the year dot. And anyone who joins the Labour Party can see from reading their rule book. I'm not saying that they do take the time, but if you do read their rule book, yeah. you can see that it does grant broad powers to the party's ruling national executive to go, I see you voted for soup. Actually, we think you voted for salad. And mm-hmm. ditto, the Conservatives rule book allows the elected leader and Boris Johnson is their legitimately elected leader to go, I don't like these 21 Conservative MPs. They aren't Conservative MPs anymore. And I think it's important to allow a legitimate party leader those uh, abilities. And it's important to give parties a fairly large degree of autonomy in terms of how they run themselves, provided they don't break equalities law and you know, don't you know obviously con their members. The problem is, is you end up with this weird situation where in terms of the spirit of that, I feel that the Brexit party does not honour that. Mm-hmm. However, in terms of the letter of that, it's kind of fair enough and I don't see how you could prohibit it without prohibiting a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't want to. It is fascinating, though. It's just such a... 
a weird. I mean, obviously they're not even going to get very far. Uh, Susan, have you got a, have you got a question? I do. Do you think it's really unfair that the Greens look like the best party because they can't fight because there's only one of them? Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it because it's all because when we talk about the Greens in in so the the politics team, the three of us kind of sit in this little vestibule in the New Statesman office. The thing we often talk about is like is Caroline Lucas a a help or a hindrance to them. On the one hand, she's really, you know, impressive. She's really yeah. charismatic. She's really likable. She manages to get a lot of people who, if anyone else went, maybe you should eat less beef, to be like, who is this commie mm. and get them off my screen? Into kind of like, oh, but she seems so reasonable. Mm. Okay, the, mom. Yeah. On the <laughs> other hand, right, their party is basically the Caroline Lucas show. Yeah. Um, they don't look like they're going to get anywhere close to electing a second MP anytime mm. soon. Um, and their kind of over-dependency on her also feels like a, bit of a limitation partly because you do some of the time feel like people have forgotten that they are a party seeking to you know both to force the other parties to become more green by essentially being a way that you can say in a local or a national election i want you to prioritize this more but also by being someone who can you know create space so you can say well i don't necessarily agree that we should have a meat tax but I do think that we should, you know, have guidance about what the environmentally conscious amount of meat that you ought to eat is. Mm. And I think in an odd way, because they have kind of become the isn't Caroline Lucas a nice and sensible seeming woman party for a lot of voters, that message kind of gets a bit swamped. Mm. But the flip side, and I hadn't thought about it this way until you point, is that the reason why, because you talk to loads of green activists and they will go, I think we've become over-dependent on Caroline right. or I think our sort of, you know, they say, uh, so someone said to me, I, I joined this party to be a kind of um, a way of punishing the other parties for not being green enough. Mm-hmm. And they said, I didn't join this party to stop Brexit because they said, I don't, they said, I think it muddies that message. Right. So they do have the same divisions as everyone else, but because they only have one MP, yeah, they seem sort of united and, yeah. you know, and kind of, yeah, we kind of forget that for all of the time that she was going, isn't it awful that Jeremy Corbyn's party is divided over Brexit, that the only other Green parliamentarian, who was Jenny Jones in the House of Lords, mm. voted for Brexit. They were 50-50 right. split on it. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> I think it, it works both ways. Yeah. It gives them a free pass, but it also does mean they kind of have struggled to get beyond their sort of one kind of charismatic figurehead. Gotcha. They're like the good Brexit party. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The flip side of that, you know, if, it, if it, it's all about the shifting the Overton window, I guess they mm. pull it the other way, don't they? Nat, have you got a question? Uh, yes. What is Perda, please, and who does it apply to and should it apply to more people and things? It refers to basically the period when, because obviously you have this weird thing in any democracy where... The government is always peopled by at least one party that would quite like to have that job. And seeing as they are the government, they have loads of levers they can pull to to mm. give you that job, right? You know, Jeremy Corbyn can promise to improve the condition of my block of flats, but the government can literally turn up and, you know, put in a shiny new concierge or whatever, although quite why a concierge would fit in my 60s <laughs> block, I don't know. But, yeah, they could, they could do all of those things tomorrow if they wanted. And basically... Perda is based around saying the government cannot turn up and go, we're going to use government money to, to win as many votes as possible. The difficulty, of course, is that it's slightly artificial because we we ban the government from doing that before the election starts, which I think is a, a good thing. Understandably, of course, if the government does something like, say, help to buy, which is, yeah, this ridiculous thing where basically the government goes, oh, do you know what our housing market really needs? 
more people trying to get on the housing ladder without increasing supply. Now, this scheme has helped some people get on the housing ladder, and lots of those people did then vote Conservative in 2015. Now, on the one hand, if the government runs a scheme, it does need to tell voters it exists. But, Mm -hmm. of course, an advert for Help to Buy that ran in April 2014 of course, was essentially an advert to vote Tory in May 2015. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what the appropriate balance is. I think it is one of those things that we have this slight tendency in this country to go, well, our PERDA rules, which, yeah, we don't really discuss very much before an election and kind of apply to some quite old-fashioned ideas about what government communication is. I mean, so throughout this election period, there has been, on my local bus stop, an advert for Britain is Great, the exporting campaign. I think there's a strong argument to be made, and probably even though I doubt that individual poster is going to change a single vote, then you ought to have to take it down. But it's one of the things I would like to change about politics, is I think that MPs should vote on what exactly is and isn't PERDA every time. And it ought to have some requirement that even if you have a parliamentary majority, you have to get sign-off from the opposing parties because it is such a movable feast, right? I mean, like, Mm. to take this terrible terror attack, of course we want the Prime Minister to reassure people and explain what's happened. Of course that provides an advantage to Boris Johnson and there is no... There is no way around that problem. I think a lot of the time people deal with that problem by getting very defensive. So whenever you say this, of course, advantages the governing party, people go, I can't believe you're accusing them of politicising this. It's like, well, no, I'm just saying inevitably, even someone who I think is as ill-suited to the role as Boris Johnson was able to come across as quite statesmanlike purely by going, here's what's happening. Mm. Isn't it great that these brave people stepped in? Um, Yeah. So is the problem with the rules about what we can and can't talk about the fact that we don't talk about them. Yeah, because it means that we basically kind of rely on this idea that, oh, well, some things which, you know, some clever people under cover of darkness go, yeah, you probably can't do that, you probably can't do that. And it also, because there's so little clarity about what you can and can't do, I think it makes a lot of people very annoyed. One of the things that MPs of all parties in marginal seats get really nervous about is there's so much they can't do for their constituents when they're not MPs for understandable reasons. But they always have this, you know, every time I call MPs during an election, they will all say, oh, I'm going to lose my seat. And you go, OK, you, they've, the Tories have won your seat since 1832 and you have a majority of 30,000. <laughs> so that feels unlikely. But why don't you talk me through why you think that is? And they say, well, someone came to me with difficulties with their planning permission. And usually I write a letter to the council explaining what it is. But I can't do that because of PERDA. And I think they just think I'm lazy. <laughs> and they're going to tell all 30,000 of their friends not to vote for me. <laughs> And I will lose the seat. And obviously that's an absurd example, but I think it does at the margin mean people experience politicians as being more unhelpful than they think they are because Mm. people don't know that there is this thing. And because we love to have kind of like, I think, you know, Perda probably as all almost all obscure British government words, I think has some kind of weird imperial kind of faintly racist connotations. (laughs) And if we just went... There's a period, there's like a fair play period where the government can't go, we've invested in broadband. People would understand that a bit more. Sort of on the flip side of that, because obviously when we, the word PERDA, a lot of the time we associate with um, broadcasting. Because this is a question that's come in via Twitter from Frank. Why are our papers in the UK so much more partisan than most other European countries? It's a really good question. I think it's partly about the history of the printing press and how it emerged as a popular organisation in, in the UK, mostly through very fiercely partisan periodicals about the Corn Laws. or Always comes back to the Corn Laws, <laughs> doesn't it? Or, you know, about... Whereas 
I think where you have a slightly different tradition of how political debate is done, for me, the example, just because I think of the other country I know well, France, where um, you know, during the last presidential election, you had a situation where one of the candidates, François Fillon, his wife had been being paid to be his aide for a you know, for decades. At the same time she was doing interviews talking about how she was just a homemaker and she she didn't have a job. This guy it looks like he was he was effectively she was being paid to do nothing. Yeah. And yeah, he would do press conferences and he'd just be like, you know, why don't you guys do your job? Ask other questions. And he's still got a quarter of the vote because people broadly do believe that you wouldn't get to do that and it's fair enough. I kind of think we've probably gone too far the other we definitely have gone too far the other way. Yeah. But this idea that someone could pay their wife for you know decades yeah. while they were sitting at home and they could get away with going, why don't you do their jo- job and still get a quarter of the vote, I just think would not happen here. No, no. Mm. Um, do you feel that this is the dirtiest election campaign we've had ever? I mean, <laughs> or, or, or maybe it isn't, and Joe Swinson really did murder some squirrels. <laughs> I mean... um, is it the dirtiest campaign we've ever had i think yeah i think it definitely is probably sort of the and i'm going to use the word modern in a very sort of narrow sense i think it's probably the most since we moved to a kind of semi-multi-channel world so whether you want to put that like 92 92 yeah 2000 i think it's definitely the the sort of the dirtiest since then Mm -hmm. because the slight weirdness and we understandably get really obsessed about micro-targeting on facebook yes but we forget that quite literally until the age of the internet, if I were, and actually this is something the Lib Dems did used to do quite a lot, right? If I were the Lib Dems, I could very easily get away with going, isn't house building terrible in a sort of leafy constituency in which I was competing for power with the Conservatives? And isn't homelessness bad in a seat in which I was competing with the Labour Party? And no one could tell. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we have this kind of slightly weird situation where whenever someone does any micro-targeting, unless it's flawless and it's never flawless, mm. right? So you always end up, like, serving some message intended for, you know, yeah, a slightly racist house husband in, in <laughs> North Wales to, you know, some, like, suburban banker woman in Richmond Park. They get quite angry. So I think it just feels very different because, yeah, like, to take the Lib Dems and... OK, they, they haven't killed any squirrels, no. but they have <laughs> killed some trees with some dodgy bar charts. That has become <laughs> prominent in this election yeah. because now everyone can see it and everyone goes, oh, that's a bit sus, isn't it? That's the thing, isn't it? You don't have your neighbour to talk to in, in times of yore. I like the way she got very upset about people perhaps thinking that she killed squirrels, yeah. but is more than happy to say, I will nuke cities. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Really, really, they really love talking about Trident. In, yeah. like, I mean, oh, that's yeah. I love I sort of things. wonder why we get obsessed with Trident. We have mm. uh, time for one more question each. So, uh, Suze, oh, if you'd like to do one. <laughs> if you'd like to do one. Yeah, do you want to do one? you got a question. So Boris Johnson gets called out for lying all the time. Whether that works or not, we don't know. But have the other parties thought about just lying loads more? The two things I hear when I talk to people who work for the other political parties is, one... A lot of them say things like maybe we should have been more aggressive towards the BBC mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, so certainly the Liberal Democrats do essentially think, and I think there actually is some truth to this, that because they have been much less willing to go, the reason why we didn't get someone on TV is because, you know, you have X view of the world or you know, that has meant that these, and you can 
fairly ask whether or not Jo Swinson would have taken the opportunity that being in that debate would have given her. Mm-hmm. But it obviously has shaped the election that the Conservatives and the Labour Party agreed a debate format which suited, which they thought suited both of them, yeah. which was to have a it's a choice between these two people mm-hmm. and no one else. Mm-hmm. I have heard from several Labour people who are like, well, if we lose this election having said we're really radical and they win having gone, we're really the same, while also mm-hmm. having a radical platform, they're just like, clearly we should just go... No, no, this none of this is yeah. none of this is out of the ordinary next time. And so I think it will this election will be corrosive to how political parties operate, particularly if the Conservatives do get a majority with that approach, because why wouldn't you dodge any serious interview, have the world's thinnest manifesto? I mean it literally is like a it is a it is a programme for the first year of the government and then afterwards it's a trust us, don't worry. Yeah, who knows? Fine. Yeah. Matt, do you have a question? I do. How many secrets do you have? <laughs> yeah, is there stuff you're not allowed to print? Mm. Um, so I'd say there were essentially two... Uh, there are only two categories of things that I haven't printed. Things where I can't stand them up to my satisfaction. So including something, yeah, whether or not because I can't face safe for certain if they're true or if I'm certain they are true in my heart, but I am certain that if I was required to prove it in court, I would fail to do so. Mm-hmm. And then the second is is where, for one reason or another, a story has kind of vanished midway through, of which the most painful, for me at least, example is the stuff around Me Too, when there was this brief period when people thought, oh, maybe this will really change in politics, because Mm. you had a brief coming together of a, a moment where neither Jeremy Corbyn nor Theresa May were, at that point, popular with their MPs. Yeah. Neither of them... For, yeah, because Jeremy Corbyn has never been at the top of the Labour Party until 2015, and Theresa May, uh, you know, is, is widely agreed to not have had sight of that. There was this hope that you had two political leaders who not only had the ability to, you know, properly clean house on it, mm. but particularly in Corbyn's perspective, right? If you think about the amount of fuss that he's had to, in the end, successfully deselect one MP, yeah. mm-hmm. lots of people uh, got quite excited thinking, oh, well, maybe because he's not going to be personally culpable and because, you know, it's also in his narrow political interests, you know, to to get rid of some of these people, Mm -hmm. it will happen. And then it became very apparent that wasn't going to happen, that they both decided their political interests were not served by going, actually, we do have a problem here and we're going to actually genuinely do something about it. Because one of the reasons why it doesn't change is that people do not want to hurt their political party with reference to the other party right you know they mm. they don't want a situation where they know full well that there are plenty of people who are pervs and bullies but only one party's been honest about yeah. it to be the pervs and bullies party and there were lots of people who at the start of that process would go i actually think i'm ready to talk about what happened and then they went oh but no one else is going to do it mm. and i think that to me is the secret that i find most painful because i i think this is probably true for most journalists in westminster we we know that there's a big story there we would like to have been able to write, right? but you can't write that story without the victim's consent. Of course. And you also can't, I think, honestly, I don't think any of those people who decided not to come forward were wrong to think that ultimately all that would happen is there would be one bad headline about a party they support and then no structural change. Yeah. So my final question is, um, is it hard to make sure you are equally tough on all parties when one is obviously a lot worse than all the others? (laughs) I mean, to be honest, actually, I kind of feel I almost have the reverse problem. Like, firstly, because I was thinking about this in terms of sort of actually writing about policy, which arguably is the core part of our job, Mm -hmm. right? We have an election in which the Conservatives have put very little policy forward, 
Labour and the Liberal Democrats have put quite a lot of policy forward. Now, because, you know, we live in an imperfect world, any analysis that you write about any party's policy will almost always be, this bit's good, this bit's all right, that bit's terrible, maybe they should do X instead. Now, yes, that means there's been more positive stuff than I've written about Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. But it also means there's been more negative stuff because you can only really say once these people are giving us a blank check. And, yeah. I, and I don't really know how we handle that. Yeah. You know, should we, at the end of pieces, start going, but, by the way, remember, the reason why today I have written one thing about Lib Dem policy, one thing about Labour policy, and there's a big silence where the governing party is because the governing party wants you to sign a blank check. I, I just don't know how to, to handle it, and that mm. does feel to me like the biggest sort of problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for that. That was really brilliant. So that's all we've got time for. A thank you to my guests, Nat Tapley and Suze Kempner, and our expert, Stephen Bush. There is another episode to listen to which features a former political advisor answering questions about what it's like from the inside of a campaign. So do listen to that, and then, for fuck's sake, don't vote Tory. Bye! Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.